Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's start very quickly with fantasy, and not just any fantasy, but the fundamental fantasy. And it's simple. The fundamental fantasy is this. The other exists. And here I mean the big other, capital O, other, in our English. The fundamental fantasy, to be traversed in analysis, we learned in seminar 11, here in 14, Lacan tells us, in so many words, the fundamental fantasy is that the other exists. Now, what do I mean by this other, this big other that we fantasize about? Mark, you down there? Um, hey, Philip, how's it going? Your mic is on. Oh, sorry about that. No worries. Welcome to the mix, my man. Thank you. Yeah. So the fundamental fantasy is that the other exists. And here, the other, the big other in question is this this other that we fancy as whole, as complete, as full, as united, as one. Think in the sense of oneness, united as one, e pluribus unum, as they used to say. Here is this totalizing treasure trove of meanings, answers, laws, orders, every word in the dictionary, every word in a language in a dictionary. What we're talking about here is a universe. At the early, in the early parts of 14, Lacan is using this word universe. And what he means by this is a, 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 I hate to say world because the universe is more than that, but it's a world where everything is brought together and fused into one, a universe. And uh, here we fancy the big other as this universe. Um, in other words, that the other is not castrated like the rest of us, that it's not lacking like the rest of us, that it's not barred like the rest of us. When I say the fundamental fantasy is that the other exists, this is what I mean. Lacan's point throughout seminar 14 is that this fantasy is false. The other is always already logically, structurally, necessarily barred, split, incomplete, castrated. This is part of the work that we've been doing in the first two sessions of this series on the logic of fantasy. In other words, here's the truth. If the fundamental fantasy is that the other exists, the truth is that it don't. In other words, the other does not exist. This is Lacan's point. Why not? Why doesn't the big other as whole as a universe of discourse, laws, meanings, feel me on the symbolic here, It doesn't exist for the same reason that there's no other of the other and no meta-language either. 
These are two popular bumper sticker approaches, phrases that have come about where Lacan is making pretty much the same point. If there is no other than the to, to the other, it is it means that the big other lacks a big other. In other words, that it's lacking. There's no meta language because there's no way that you could talk about language that would not itself involve the use of language. No way of talking about language apart from language. There's no meta language. There's no outside discourse. Um, this would also be um, part and parcel of what made Derrida famous. And Lacan and Derrida have had a kind of tangled history um, from uh, from Hopkins forward and maybe even a little bit around that period. Um, but we can get into that later if we need to. But this idea that there is no outside text Derrida made famous um, is closely related to what Lacan is doing here when he says there's no meta language. Um, and here's how we arrived at that in the simplest, most logical sense. Containers are not among their contents. The bag that holds a bunch of dicks is not itself a dick included in the bag of dicks. Um, this is especially true, even and especially true, when containers purport to be totalizing containers, containers that purport to contain every entity of a certain kind, whether it's the dictionary that purports to contain every word in a given language, or the symbolic, or the big other, these treasure troves. Um, the more treasure trovey a container purports to be, the more we can rest assured that it will, in fact, be a leaky container, a bag in which the dicks can't help but slip out. We arrived at this by saying that it's only by leaving something out that the big other as a totalizing operation can ensure its count is legit and complete. And this was the tricky thing. Wait a minute, you're telling me that it's only by leaving something out that the totalizing, universalizing count of the big other can be complete? Yes. But here's how we arrived at that. The something which is always left out as a guarantee that the symbolics count or the state's count is complete is always nothing relative to that count. Nothing has been left out of a complete count. If everything is included, it means that nothing has been excluded. Now, usually we hear that as saying, oh, that just means it's all here. Lacan's point though is that no, the something which is nothing that has to be excluded in order for your claims of totalization to hold water is an entity to be studied and thought. And this is kind of like mind blowing for folks because we oftentimes approach thought at the level of ontology, a question of what is. Psychoanalysis though is really good at thinking the other question here, not what is, but what ain't emphasis on that lowercase a and ain't. What is not 
here. The ontology of psychoanalysis, you often hear me say, is a meontology. It's not a study of being, it's a study of non-being, which is why Lacan's ears are so well tuned in to this something which is nothing that guarantees the completion of the big other's totalizing count. If everything is included, nothing has been excluded. Nothing has been left out. Nothing has been left behind. And Lacan, as a thinker, wants to turn around and go pick it up, check it out, see what the hell this nothing, in fact, is. Um, we can talk, and we have talked a lot about what this nothing is. We don't need to here today. Um, I want to add some other stuff here. Sex. The sexual act, as Lacan is referring to it here in 14. It's part and parcel of this fundamental fantasy that the big other is somehow complete, whole, united. Um, by promising and tempting us with this unity, completion, oneness, the sexual act defends against the fact that completion, unity, and oneness doesn't exist, that the big other as whole, as treasure trove, think the lower right-hand quadrant of the graph of desire, doesn't exist and never has. Now, if we're looking for a passage to get us started on this, check out pages 91 to 92. In the manuscript here, on pages 91 to 92, these were summative pages. These were pages where Lacan was finally coming clean and telling us what he's doing here in seminar 14. And I clued you into these pages last time, but we didn't spend a lot of time focused on them. Here though, we absolutely can. Um, here on pages 91 to 92 down at the bottom, we get some pretty good material here. It's about castration. And then he immediately shifts to sexuality. I'll give you all a minute to get this manuscript in front of you. If you don't have it, or you're wondering what we're looking at here, you can go to the registration page for this series um, on Substack or on Eventbrite if it's still there. And you can scroll down and in the logic of fantasy, there's a clickable link that will take you to Lacan in Ireland, which is the version of this manuscript that we're working with here. On page 91, it's the first page of the lecture Lacan gave on the 25th of January, 1967, if that helps you any. So scrolling down, it's the last paragraph that begins castration on page 91. Now, with that preamble, I hope you've had a chance to find the manuscript for yourself. And now I'll read it. Castration, then, is something like waking up to the fact that sexuality, I mean, every bit of it that is realized in psychic events, is that, namely, something which is marked by the sign of lack. From the fact, for example, that the other, the other of the inaugural lived experience of the life of the child, and this is a capital O other, must at some moment appear
as castrated. No doubt this horror, which is linked to the first apprehension of castration as being supported by what we designate in analytic language as the mother, italics there, suggesting some emphasis, namely what is not to be purely and simply taken as the person charged with diverse functions in a certain typical relation at the origin of the life of the little human. Don't forget, for Lacan, mommy is a function. Mommy doesn't have to be the person between whose piss and shit you came out. Mommy doesn't have to be the anatomical mother of the, the worm uh, known as the little human here. It's a function. It's a subject position that anyone can occupy. A better word for it, for our purposes, could just be primary caregiver. The primary caregiver. This other, he says, which is put in question at the origin of this whole logical operation, that this other should be castrated, the correlative and regular horror, as one might say, which occurs at this discovery, is something which carries us to the heart of what is involved as regards the relation of the subject to the big other insofar as it is grounded in it. Now, we don't need to look far in our notes from previous series here in Lectures on Lacan to find an example of what he's talking about. Think of the pre-Oedipal imaginary triangle that we've oftentimes discussed, the relationship between the child, the maternal figure, and the phallus, the imaginary phallus. I can summarize it very quickly without doing the diagram work here, and it'll jog your brain. You'll know exactly the image I'm talking about. The child experiences desire for the care and affection and love of the maternal figure. But what the child realizes is that the maternal figure has desire for things other than the child. And so as a result of this, the child learns to guess what it is that the maternal figure or function also wants. This is the imaginary phallus. The child is imagining all this other stuff and identifies with it, wants to approximate this thing. And the idea here is that by approximating and identifying with the desire of the mother figure for something else, the child can get its desire for the mother figure satisfied. Now, what this ultimately arrives at is Lacan's statement that our desire is always the desire of another, of the other. We desire as others. Why? Because in order to figure out what somebody else wants other than us, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and imagine the world from their perspective, fantasize about all the things that they might want. So that's a move. That's an imaginary triangle that then gets disrupted in this experience known as castration. When the paternal figure cuts in with a simple statement, Mommy doesn't have the phallus, and you can't be it for her. She doesn't have, and you can't be. Why castration is usually symbolized by this minus phi is to say that this imaginary object that you hope to acquire and approximate in order to secure the maternal figure's affection, you don't get it. 
you can't have it. You can't be it. She can't have it or be it either. Y'all are fucked. But this is a great fucking that occurs because this introduces some breathing room and some space between the maternal figure and, um, and the child. So what we're working on here is the child's first experience with a lacking other. It's an imaginary experience in which we imagine the maternal figure as lacking something, as wanting something, as desirous. And if the paternal function doesn't come in and disrupt this little fantasy, anxiety is one of the results. This is what we learned in our series on Seminar 10, Anxiety. Lacan's point here is that even in the fundamental developmental stages of a child's life, they are seeing, sometimes on a daily basis, that the primary caregiver is a barred, split, castrated, and thus desirous other. So what he's trying to say here is like, he's been getting at this argument about the barred other at the structural, logical even philosophical level, if you admit symbolic logic as an aspect of philosophy. Now what he's saying is developmentally, bro, you're going to be seeing this left and right. What the child does with this encounter with a desirous other depends in large part on this third party, fourth party, even if you admit the imaginary phallus as an entity in this equation, which is the paternal figure, which again is not your daddy. It can be, it need not be. The paternal figure, like the maternal figure, is a function. It's a role, a subject position. Which brings us to this key paragraph on page 92. Next paragraph. Sexuality, as it is lived, as it operates, is, in this respect, something fundamentally in that we map out our analytic experience, something which represents a prohibiting oneself from following the consequences of this truth, that there is no other. So whatever Lacan means by sex, sexuality, the sexual relation, the sexual act, and we're gonna parse out some of these different sexes in, in our work here today. Whatever he means there, we'll come soon come to see what he means here is the sexual act, is that it's a defense against the harsh truth, the harsh reality, that there is no whole, complete, non-desirous big other. There's no guarantor, in other words. And that is a terrifying truth. You see, you, you see this all the time in late modernity as well, especially in today's um, resurgence of the, of the paranoid style. Um, it's much easier. It's much easier to imagine that there is an all-knowing, omniscient, big other out there to get us. The NSA, Queen of England, Colonel Sanders, Barack Obama, Facebook, Mark Zuckerkorn, all of these figures that we imagine as having access to unlimited information and all the things that they know about this. You oftentimes see this um, in spy movies. It's very classic. And like, if you look at, for instance, like the Bourne 
um, series, the Jason Bourne series. There's always this computer room with a staff of people that are trying to keep track of this living subject as he weaves his way through the streets of Athens or God knows what other European cities. Um, and it's at the, 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 um, the, the center of this, this nerve hub of information that we imagine the big state, uh, the dark state, the deep state operating. Lacan's point is, um, what a fantasy. It, I mean, not to say that it's a psychotic delusion, but this kind of paranoid fantasy that there's a big other out there watching us, a big brother, if you will. Lacan just says that's bullshit. That is a defense against the harsher truth, which is the big other is not out there. Nobody's in fact watching. And you know what's harsh about that is because you don't deserve to be watched. You're just not that fucking important. Don't pretend you're Jason Bourne as you're walking through the streets of Athens, looking up at every camera on the corner. Ain't nobody in there watching you. When you're in Target and you look up and there's that black globe at the ceiling and you imagine there's somebody on the other end, a camera behind the tinted glass that is then being watched, that ain't the truth. The harsher truth is nobody's watching. Nobody fucking cares. Nobody has access to all the information. The big other doesn't exist. And Lacan here is making this point that it also permeates human sexual relations. That part of what <clears throat> goads us when we engage sexually with another person is the hope that we can somehow achieve oneness, completion, totality a universe of sex, the same way that we assume that there is a big other out there with all of this access. Lacan's point is that is a fantastical, damn near delusional defense against the harsher truth, which is that there is no other. This is what I have to commentate for you today. For undoubtedly, I took the approach of the philosophical tradition to pronounce the other does not exist. And in this connection to evoke the atheistic correlation that this profession involves. But of course, is it not something at which we can stop? You see the translation here gets a little wonky. And we have to ask ourselves, go further in the sense of posing the question, what is meant by this fall of the big other? capital S, O, barred in brackets, that we pose as being the term logically equivalent to the inaugural choice of alienation. This fall of the big other is what Lacan is talking about. And I also want you to hear some of the etymology in the word fall. Fall, fail, phallus. This is a great point that Bruce Fink makes throughout his work, I would say, is that when you look at what Lacan is doing with um, failure and phallus and impotence and the like, the phallus is always, when you hear phallus, think failure, think falling, if you're a, more of a Heideggerian type. Um, here's what I want to say, though, about this. And here's why it's important. In order to understand what Lacan is doing with fantasy, I wanna suggest that we really have to dig into what he's doing here with sexuality, the sexual act. But here's the thing, in order to dive into this topic, 
we got to take a few more steps. In order to understand what Lacan is doing with fantasy, we have to understand what he's doing with sexuality. In order to understand what he's doing with sexuality, though, we got to understand what he's doing with sublimation, also here in seminar 14. But we can dip into other seminars as we talk about this. Here's the thing, though. In order to understand what Lacan is doing with sublimation in seminar 14, we have to understand what he's doing with repetition in seminar 14. And the best way to make sense of what he's doing with repetition in 14 is to understand what he's doing with repression here and elsewhere in his work. So here's the lineup. Fantasy, but you got to understand sexuality first. But in order to understand sexuality, you got to understand sublimation. In order to understand sublimation, you got to understand repetition. In order to understand repetition, you got to understand repression. And thus, we have a trajectory. I'm going to pause for just a moment here because um, there's some construction, as you may hear, happening in the apartment next door. Hold tight. I'll be right back. Okay, here we go again. Thanks for that brief interjection here. What we've been getting at here is this like agenda of ours that stretches from fantasy to repression. And that's where we're headed. So before we do that, though, let's pause for some questions. You've heard a lot already today. What else um, can I help you answer? So do you think part of um, the fantasy of the other is the idea that like something has a plan and that way you don't have to confront um, that like, you know, things are just um, happening, like shit just happens, you know, and so there's something terrifying about that, like, and so it's more comforting to think like, oh, there's this big, you know, there's this big, you know, that's like the conspiracy theory mindset is like, oh, it's all this big plan. And, you know, better, it's better to have that, even if it's sinister, than to just have like, um, to have the lack of uh, a plan. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's why Lacan also mentions when he says, oh, and I made this philosophical move of saying that the other doesn't exist, which of course brings with it atheistic components. You just heard me read that passage. That's what he's getting at. Um, he's, he's talking about the death of God in the Nietzschean sense. He's also talking about the fall of Big Brother in the Orwellian sense, not in the sense that Big Brother was once there and it's time to smash the state and take take it down. Lacan's like, that's fucking ridiculous. That's ridiculous. There is no such thing as that. There is no entity in the world. And, and this is partly, you can see this in the different crassies that pop up in the history of the West. So Arendt, Hannah Arendt, quite brilliant, one of Heidegger's best students, arguably the best, um, because she took Heidegger and did something amazing with him, something totally new that was completely hers. Um, not that Gadamer didn't, but Arendt does something amazing. And among her political theoretical writings is some really smart stuff on the difference between democracy, monarchy, and bureaucracy. So democracy is ruled by all, by many, by the demos, some neighborhood, you know. 
monarchy would be ruled by one mono. Um, tyranny would be a, an, an extenuated circumstance of monarchy. But bureaucracy, bureau, desk, think paper. The truth of bureaucracy, according to Arendt, is that no one is in charge. And that's the great horror of bureaucracy, is that no one is actually in charge. Mark Zuckerberg, at some level, has no fucking idea what Facebook and Instagram and so forth are up to. There is no mastermind. There is no Wizard of Oz. You feel me? There may not even be Oz to begin with. And that's part of what Lacan's getting at here. It's much easier to believe that these big others exist. Even if it's terrifying to think that they have access to all this information, um, fill in the blank with your conspiracy theory, then to face the really harsh truth, which is that shit happens, as you so well put. Things just happen, not because you're being watched, not because you're being persecuted, not because there's a Manhattan witch hunt trying to take you down, but shit just happens. And one of the great parts about psychoanalytic theory and technique is it helps people roll with that. It helps people roll with the truth of human togetherness, which is that it is not a field of necessity. It is a field of contingency. You see, necessity as a modality in the Aristotelian sense says, things are a certain way and they have to be that way. Contingency though accepts things are the way they are, but they didn't have to be that way. The modality of contingency helps us understand and deal with the fact that things are what they are. It is what it is, as we say, uh, on the West Coast, but it doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. It was a contingency, not some master plan that led to this. And so you see this very clearly in narratives around um, people who are suffering, where someone, your aunt, I don't fucking know, shows up after your mom's diagnosed with cancer and says some dumb shit like it's all part of God's plan. And I say dumb shit not because it's stupid, um, because, of course, it's very smart for her and a very big deal for her to be able to think that. Um, it's dumb shit because it's insensitive to the dramatic pain that you're going through, the suffering. Um, uh, uh, and I don't want to equate pain and suffering here. Life is full of pain, but it doesn't have to be a life of suffering, right? You don't need Lacan to figure this out. Um, Eastern philosophy will take you through that one. But for, for someone to show up and say, oh, it's all part of God's plan, um, what the fuck are they talking about? And this is how you get into like theistic dilemmas of like, if God exists, why would they allow something like this to occur? Lacan's point is, um, you know, cut that knot. Don't try and untie it. The truth is God doesn't exist. And we created that thing is in order to have this feeling of comfort that you described, Philip. Go ahead, follow up. Yeah, that exact line. I just want to. I hate. I hate when people say that. And it's something I heard all the time in twelve-step meetings when I was um, going in recovery, and um, and it was one of the most off-putting things about the whole thing. I mean, there are some good, you know, nuggets in twelve steps, but um, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention 
was I feel like uh, people are trying to resuscitate um, a big other through, I see it in, are you familiar with the anthropic principle? Mm -hmm. in, in, so in physics, this has come with all the woo with uh, multiverse theory and the idea, the anthropic principle says, oh, well, if there's infinite universes, um, ours is like finely tuned to have these constants of nature that uh, happen to work out so that, you know, there can be life and there can be intelligent life. Um, and so it feeds this narrative of, you know, that there's like um, a plan that we're here for a reason. And I think that's just another way to um, cope with um, existence, not having like this, you know, purposeful thing. And I think just that our minds are like really bad with coping with improbable things like that. And like tends to break our sense of like reason or something yeah but that's great. yeah i see that yeah. as like the very it's, it's just like a way to reanimate um that sort of like uh a cot like a cosmic um origin story you know a new cosmogony yes so two things really quick and then we'll get going here First, um, that's great. I'm glad you bring this up, Philip, because um, probability is something that we invented. So the post-Foucauldian scholar, Ian Hacking, wrote a couple of really dynamite books on the taming of chance and the emergence of probability. So probability and statistical reasoning emerge in this universe of modernity and capitalism, where folks are really trying hard to mitigate the chanciness of life in the classical pre-modern era. And so this, like the, the social arithmetic, for instance, that gives us statistics and, and, um, and probability was also an effort to kind of like control and, and defend against what we know to be the truth, which is that shit happens. So probability is a great word to have in here. The probabilistic sciences, statistical measurements and the like, they are there and they've been invented to help us kind of tame this very wild chanciness um, that we know all too well as life. A plane could crash into this building um, or it could crash into yours at any moment. And we know that. Um, the second thing that I would just remind you of is that according to Lacan, this is the fundamental fantasy. At root, the fundamental fantasy that is to be traversed in psychoanalysis, toward the end of analysis, the traversing of the fundamental fantasy that conditions your ability to live out the drive is the traversing of this fantasy, that there is a big other, that there is a world or a universe of meaning in which we all are playing a part. It's when you have moved past that, when you can let that go and go with the chanciness of life a little bit more, that you're ready, that you're ready to be at the end of analysis, Lacan suggests in the final pages of seminar 11, which again, I take to be one of the great seminars um, in his career.
So I'm glad we've got this out and on the table again. We are dealing with the fundamental fantasy here. Now, I've put it several different ways. Um, in our last series on the drive, we talked about the fundamental fantasy as an other that is not desirous, but demanding. But remember how I framed that. The other is demanding in this fantasy because it can issue demands, because it knows everything about itself. Because it knows everything, it can simply tell us what to do tell us what to want, tell us even what it wants. And we oftentimes um, find this narrative very appealing um, because the alternative is scary. And if you ever wanna see this stuff played out, because here we're talking about law, desire, the big other, um, just think about cops, not the show, but police officers. You don't wanna get pulled over by a cop who is desirous, who is lacking, who doesn't quite know what the fuck they're all about. You wanna get pulled over by a cop who knows everything about the law, is acutely aware of the limits of their authority and so forth, so that they adhere to all that shit. The scary part about cops, especially now that we all have smartphones that can see this stuff all too often, is that they are not these robotic, controlled, measured, omniscient beings who show up in a measured, regulated way. They're just like us. In fact, their subjectivities are oftentimes even more split than ours. And so when you get pulled over, it's terrifying to think what fucking sadist is now approaching your driver's side. It's much easier to think, well, they'll know what to do. They'll know how this ought to be played out because they're the police, they symbolize law and order. All too often though, what we've seen is that um, these are, these are um, uh, seeds of chaos and disorder, but it's much easier to believe the alternative, which is that they are representatives of the law and they always stick to it. Notice for instance also here, this fundamental fantasy of a big omniscient, omnipotent whole, universe that is the other um, is constantly belied at the level of entertainment by all the shows and movies, for instance, that we watch that feature the crooked cop, the person who should be straight-laced, buttoned up, clean cut, fill in the blank with all the things that signify an upright law-abiding individual. We love seeing this fantasy flaunted. That's an interesting part of all this. We enjoy at the level of entertainment seeing our own fundamental fantasy flaunted. We also, though, love seeing it supported. Think of all the other movies. You've already heard me mention one series that feature the NSA some sort of super surveillance state with a series of computers and large screens and white men in suits telling people to pull up image of this and image of that and everything's moving at the speed of lightning, unlike your internet at home. So you see in entertainment and popular culture, a really interesting bifurcation between sources of entertainment that flaunt and undermine the fundamental fantasy and sources of entertainment that support it. What you do with that is, is something for later. We were, though, talking about this agenda of ours, 
which starts with repression. Now, I've already talked about repression a lot. Um, in Seminar 11, our series on Seminar 11, for instance, you can check it out there. There's good stuff around repression as we were working through Lacan's theory of the unconscious. So I'll be brief here. The basic model for repression looks a lot like the elementary graphs of desire in the subversion of the subject essay. And what I can do is share a screen as I talk and just do some quick diagramming of this stuff. So hold up a second. Thumbs up if you can see this screen in front of you. You see a black screen? Okay. And I realize that not everybody appears on the screen here because this, this thing just does weird stuff, but I see a few of you. So um, turn your mic on if you have a question and, uh, and you want me to repeat anything. But again, this should be a review for, for lots of you. So what you could have at the start, and I hesitate to say that at the start, is some sort of a trauma. In the past, I've often used the example of like a car crash or something like that. You're just driving along, everything's cool, and then bam, there's a big old disruption. This um, car crash would be a traumatic event of sorts. And what we know about trauma and repression is that what gets repressed is not every single aspect of the event. It's a signifier of that event, maybe a couple of signifiers, maybe three signifiers of that event that get repressed. So in the case of the car accident, you've heard me talk about the feeling of, I don't know, cotton or velvet um, matted to your skin on account of blood. That feeling of many lacerations on your hand from small little cubits of glass. And you repress signifiers of that primal scene, of that traumatic event. That's how these things go. And then as you're traveling along in life, you find yourself, one of the examples I've used has been at a store, shopping for clothing. And all of a sudden, you touch a velvet shirt and you recoil in horror. Your hand pulls back and you feel like you're going to vomit. These are extreme examples, but they illustrate the point. Here, what you have is a symptom. It's some element later on in time that you encounter in your environment that you don't understand what's going on because you have an outsized reaction to it. It's a reaction, not only, but also an outsized reaction. It's out of proportion. This is what's called the return of the repressed. In this moment, some aspect of your environment has touched upon a signifier of this previous trauma. And according to Lacan, you have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity to connect the dots. This arc here is one of meaning. It's also crucially retroactive because it's only by looking back into your past 
that you can acknowledge, oh, that was a big issue for me. Not that you don't remember the car crash every single day of your life when your knees ache or when you notice the scar, but that you recognize just how traumatic it was in that moment. This is a symptomatic expression of a repressed trauma. And this is Lacan's theory of repression in a nutshell. There's more to it, but this is good for us to get started. The important thing to note here is the topological form of this thing, which looks a lot like the elementary graph of desire. So this is why I say we want to start with repression. Here's my question to you in order to put us on the path to repetition. Which came first, the trauma or the symptom? Now, there are two ways to answer this question. On the one hand, we can say that what came next, what came first was the trauma. Clearly, you had the car crash before you had the symptomatic expression of that repressed traumatic event later at the store. Temporally speaking, trauma comes first. And here, the model of time that we're working with is chronological time from the Greek notion chronos, one thing after the other. Now, let me just be clear about this. It really wasn't until about the 18th century that people got it into their heads that time was chronological, that year one, two, three, four, five, that just was not how people in the Western tradition thought. So for instance, in the quote, dark ages, you could have monks talking about how great of a Christian Socrates was. And you'd be like, wait a minute, hold up, bro. Father, I mean. Um, Socrates lived hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, and hundreds of years by that standard before there was anything like Christianity. So what's what's the deal here? How can you possibly how could he possibly have been a good Christian if Jesus hadn't even been born yet? The medieval mind was totally different around time. The idea that time would unfold in this linear and ideally progressive sequence is a modern invention. <clears throat> And I just want to kind of hold that place. So I'm using the Greek notion of chronos here to talk about this perspective that says the trauma precedes the symptom. But that doesn't mean that the Greeks thought of time in that way at all. In fact, I would suggest that um, one of the great distinctions between modern and pre-modern eras in the West is precisely how they experience time. Um, Another way to answer this question, which came first, trauma or the symptom, is to say actually the symptom came first. This is a logical answer, a structural answer, and it is Lacan's answer. Which came first, the trauma that endured repression or the symptom that signaled its return? Lacan's point in his theory of repression, particularly here in 14, is that the symptom comes first. And this is how repetition works. It works retroactively. When 
when one event names or designates a preceding event as its origin. And for those of you that read the work of Walter Benjamin, you know what I mean by origin here. Ursprung. We're not talking about Genesis. Read his um, his Habilitation Schrift on Charspiel tragedy, and you'll see what I'm after here. So here's what we have. Until the symptom, and I would add, and I, it doesn't take an analyst to do this, and I see we've got some great analysts on the line, but I would say, even in spite of symptomatic expressions, the subject knows no trauma. There was no trauma until that symptom popped up because the trauma was lost, because the trauma was repressed, or at least signifiers of it were repressed. It's not until you have a symptomatic breakdown that you suddenly can look back and be like, damn, what happened to me to make me break down like that? It makes the trauma a second logical moment, not a first in the theory of repression. The return of the repressed, and for Lacan, by the way, repression and the return of the repressed, he'll oftentimes mention this. He says, these are the same things. These are not two different experiences. They are, they are like two sides of the same sheet of paper. You really can't separate these two events because until you have a return of the repressed, there's nothing to speak about in the field of repression. The return of the repressed as a symptom, it retroactively designates, names, identifies, pulls out of hiding. I'm speaking to the Heideggerians here. It discloses. It unconceals its origin, thereby refiguring itself as a repetition of a past event. So what the symptom does by designating its origin is it marks itself as a repetition of that event. You see what I'm saying? In order to have a repetition, you have to have this second instance. You can't go to Berlin once and call it a repeat experience. It's only when Kierkegaard goes to Berlin again to try and have the same experience, staying in the same hotel, visiting the same spots, drinking the same uh, sherry and, and the like. It's only after the first moment that you can go back with a second and indicate the emergence of a repetition. Um, and what I would just suggest is that I see your questions and we'll come back to them in just a second, um, is that it makes the trauma or the quote unquote first event, um, not only something that was heretofore lost, but also something that's now been found. Psychoanalysis is a game of lost and found, which is why Lacan is always careful to point out, he's not searching for anything. He finds stuff. I do not seek, I find. He quotes Picasso at the start of seminar 11, which is why he's always gonna say that the unconscious when we encounter it is at the level of rediscovery. We are always rediscovering things. The symptom is an opportunity for rediscovery. Discover, to uncover again, rediscover to uncover once again. Um, 
I would just add that this topology of return and be very careful here. I want you to notice the shift from time to space. The temporal answer is that the trauma comes first. The spatial answer is something different. When Lacan moves to topology, he's moving into a spatializing logic. That's what he means by structure too, is spatiality. So people are like, which came first, the real, the symbolic, or the imaginary? For Lacan, these are topological registers. It's not like one came before the other. He doesn't think about them temporally in that way, even though he's a great time thinker. The topology of return that we see in this graph of repetition and repression um, is a spatial, it's a spatial dynamic, if you will, there's movement in it, but it defies theories of linearity because it shows these two arrows, one moving diachronically and the other synchronically, retroactively cutting it twice. Lacan wants this move to happen. He doesn't want a simple linear sequence of time and speech to define what it means to be an analysis because that's not how it works. There's always this retroactive element. Or as I recently lectured to a group in Rome um, just last week um, from the Kierkegaard angle, um, we know this. It's the basic truth of existentialism is that life has to be lived forward but it can only be understood backward. Lacan is simply capturing this bumper sticker of existentialism in a topology that is eventually going to become the graph of desire, where you have forward movement. Here's metonymy, here's desire, here's time, here's diachrony, here's what I described as chronos. And then you have this backward retroactive movement of meaning, of metaphor not of desire, ask yourself what goes in there instead. If we wanted to stick with the Greeks, what I would just add here is that the model of time here, as we shift from time to space, is not chronos, but kairos. Kairomania is a kind of like lust for moments. Kairos in the Greek also meant weather, but kairos captures the idea of an event a happening, a stitching together of things across time. Jacques Lacan is a chirological thinker when it comes to time. He does not think chronologically. His theory and his technique are based on a chirological theory of time, the likes of which the West hadn't seen since the other figure I mentioned, Walter Benjamin. Freud got it. Freud understood it. Lacan really got it, really theorized it. People oftentimes wonder what it was like when Lacan was hanging out with Heidegger. It sounds like a horrible experience, especially if you were the translator. What I would want to know is what would it be like if Benjamin had lived and he and Lacan could have gotten together and chopped it up? That would have been an interesting conversation, especially if they had gotten into theories of retroactive time. Um, I also would suggest, though, that for all the language philosophers out there, that topology that we were just working with is also the topology in which to understand Lacan's theory of language. Speech unfolds in time, but it's only at the end of a sentence. 
that you can look back and understand the meaning of everything. Just as it's usually only at the end of the book that you can look back and understand, oh, shit, that's why no one could see this person throughout the novel. He was already dead. You see, this is a classic move. At the very end, you realize some truth about the main character that allows you to think back and make sense of all the weird happenings that had occurred up to that point. He was dead all along. All right. Um, now let's pause, because I know there are some questions here. Um, this is some wild stuff. We're on the verge of repetition out of repression and on our way to fantasy. Don't forget it. Floor is open. What's on your brains? Well, just from how you ended that, I just wanted to mention um, Philip K. Dick is also a great thinker for, um, I guess, retroactivity or even like simultaneity. Because um, Ubik is one of my favorite books I've ever read, but I'm just starting to read um, his exegesis. And uh, just in like the first five pages, he is, um, you know, it's like 8,000 pages and uh, not the, it, they condensed it down, but he wrote like 8,000 pages trying to describe this um, experience he had. Um, and he's talking about, he talks about the logos, right? And um, he relates it to, you know, it was like, think late yeah late 60s uh, he's reading some stuff about tachyons um well and there's like richard Feynman, uh who was putting out the idea of um positrons the opposite of the electron actually being um you know going backwards in time and then there's like these tachyons which are um, faster than light and have this very hard to wrap your head around relationship with time but um, but yeah my, my question was um, so this again seems like a, a problematic um, vocabulary to like the symptom really isn't, you know, you said this before, but it's not symptom as we think about it. This is more, he's talking about just the awareness. Um, and cause like you're, we have all, we have like, we have symptoms from traumatic experiences that are showing up all the time that we're just not aware of. Right. And, um, so this symptom that Khan's talking about is, um, it's re, are you just re-experiencing the last time you recalled that event? Um, 
Well, I'm going to pause you there, Phil. Like it's not even necessarily That's not even question. necessarily like the original thing, but you're just yeah. And that is that's a very good question, Philip. Um, let, let's pause right there because um, what we know about repetition too is that it also doesn't exist. You can't repeat things. Repetition, as Deleuze taught us, and don't forget, in this period, Lacan is reading and discovering Monsieur Deleuze. It's even quoted in here. You hear him talking about this guy, Deleuze, who's writing really cool things, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great moment in French intellectual life. Um, Deleuze, don't forget, really pops with this book, Difference in Repetition. Repetition with a difference is the name of the game. And, and that's important here. So it's not like the symptom is a complete re-experiencing of the event without um, error or omission. That's not how it works. A repetition is always a repetition with a difference, if only by the sheer fact that being on the streets in the car crash is not the same as being in the store thumbing through clothing. These are two disparate spaces. Similarly, being in the car crash in 1997 is not the same as being in the store in 2022. So there are always lots of differences that support, enable, and refute logics of repetition. And yet there can still be, maybe a better word for this is resonance, a deep, profound resonance between the symptomatic expression of a clinical issue and the, the, the event, the primal scene that um, tilled the soil for that clinical structural issue. And that's important to remember here too. Repetition like the big other doesn't exist because there are always differences. These resonances between present moments and past events is really what we're looking at here. We're looking at wormholes between the past and the present. And Lacan thinks these are fundamental to the work of analysis because what they are are opportunities for the subject, the analysand, to resubjectivize their past, not so much as something that is always controlling them, driving them in their dreams, recoiling them from clothing at a store, but in a sense that it could be re-owned. Your past in this moment, according to Lacan, can become your history, part of what made you, but not the sole driver of your life, the way it is if it hasn't been dealt with. Coming to terms with one's past is a process of resubjectivization Lacan teaches in the 50s that allows you to reclaim that past as your history and to recognize all of the contingencies that went into that shit. Contingencies that have made you who you are today. For Lacan, this is the basic analytic method that Freud discovered. And it's premised on a, an ability to find retroactive resonances. Here, though, in Seminar 14, Lacan is using the word repetition. And what I want to do is signal some pages for you. We're not going to get into it. Pages 112 through 114 are, are fantastic on this stuff. There's stuff in there on rediscovery. There's stuff in here on the topology of return. There's stuff on what he's doing with time, 
112 to 114. If this topic interests you, that'd be a great place to go. We don't have time to get into it. Um, rest assured, though, if you hit me up later, I'm happy to chat further. What matters for us right now in our penultimate session on this wild and woolly seminar is not the traumatic origin in which this game of lost and found is potentially said. And it's not the symptomatic expression in which this potential for rediscovery emerges. What matters for us is the retroactive relation between these two events, these two phenomena, if you will. And I want to emphasize this. This retroactive relationship between these two events is neither the one event nor the other, but instead a third element. What Lacan in seminar 14 calls an additional one. The relationship between past and present, trauma and symptom, is its own distinct entity, a third entity, an additional one in addition to the first two. The symbol for this additional one, and you've been hearing it me, you've been hearing it from me for a while now, is little a. In Lacan's algebra, little a, in this manuscript, it's little o, but in the standard English translation of Lacan's work, we're talking about objet a. This little a is this additional one, this third element, this third numerical entity that is neither one nor two, nor exactly the number three. Now, what you've heard from me, and I'll repeat it here again in case you're new, and I know there are some of us here on the call that, that haven't been with us before. Little a is a symbol for lack, we've heard, but let's be more precise. It signals the minimum irreducible distance or difference between any two entities or events that allows these two entities to appear distinct. So you've heard me toy with the example of the pen against the white wall. There's the pen that you see here. There's the white wall behind it. Lacan's point though is that there's a third element and it's less to do with a lack or an opening than what he is starting to specify in the 60s as an edge. There's an edge between the background of the white wall and the foreground of the black pen. That is a third element. It's the minimum irreducible distance or difference needed to allow the pen to appear distinct from the wall. If you were to remove that third element with an edge-like structure, that little a, you would neither see pen nor wall. They would blur into each other. It would be all wall or it would be all pen, but you certainly wouldn't see a distinction. And Lacan's point is, as a result, you wouldn't see either of them. Because in order to count to one, you have to first be able to count to two. In order for something to be attended to, to be seen, it has to occur against the backdrop of things unseen, 
even though phenomenologically present. This was one of Heidegger's great insights too. When I tell you, check out this pen, and all of your attention on this call, focus on the pen. What I'm also asking you to do when I say check out this pen is don't look at this really weird ass drawing that I picked up from some guy in Romania a few decades back. I'm saying don't look at that. Every selection of reality that someone asks you to focus your attention on is a reflection of all the aspects that they could have called out, but it's also a deflection from all of these other entities by inviting you to focus on one instead of the other. But you have to have the sense of all these other things in order to understand and perceive this one. This is the work of the great thinker, Kenneth Burke, um, it's also the work of Martin Heidegger to name another white guy. You know, you got to have a stack of white guys to make this shit authoritative, right? Um, don't forget, though, Hannah Arendt is here. She was kind of white. Um, but think about this. Um, the stack of white guys that have to be here to help us understand the difference between a pen and a wall. If you ever want to see, like, um, the truth of the phallus as failure, there it is. You got to have a stack of white guys, most of them dead, um, certainly propertied. Um, in, in order to understand the difference between a pen and a wall. Isn't that outrageous? This whole, all this shit is outrageous, says the white guy. Um, this additional one, we're going to designate with little a. That's my point. And Lacan does it throughout seminar 14. The translation that we have in front of us has it as a little o, because they brought it into the English as other, which is fine. Uh, for us, we know it as little a. Um, I want to emphasize this. It's neither one, nor two, nor exactly three. This relationship between trauma and symptom, for instance, pen and wall, is a differential relationship. I'm not saying pen equals wall. And I'm not saying in the return of the repressed that symptom equals trauma. We're not dealing with mathematical equality here. We're dealing with a differential equality. I'm saying that in order to understand pen, you have to have a sense of wall. And again, the classic example of this is looking up a word in the dictionary. Look up the word pen in a dictionary. You're not going to see a picture of this pen. If you see a picture at all, you're going to see something like another string of words. A utensil used for writing. Well, what the fuck is a utensil? And what does writing mean? What does that mean? Now you got to go to the dictionary and look up another word, utensil and writing. And guess what? When you look up utensil, you're going to get all kinds of definitions as well with more words. And if you've ever tried to learn another language and gotten as your dictionary, a dictionary in that language, you know exactly the experience I'm talking about. You feel me? Like you get the German dictionary in German and you look up the word unheimlich and you're like, oh shit, more German words for me to look up in order to understand the meaning of this one. Now, if you get the English dictionary and you look up cat to stick with another example that you've heard from me before, you're going to see attributes of a cat, fuzzy, 
four-legged usually, that don't equal cat. They don't equal cat, but in order to make sense of cat, you have to understand its differential relation to these other elements, these other entities. That's what Lacan's getting at. This is part of his theory of language. It's part of his theory of repression. It's part of his theory of repetition. What I wanna suggest is that this differential relation, and I'm quoting Lacan here, is a non-numerical element, which is not reducible to the series of natural numbers. It is neither additionable to nor subtractable from the one or the two of symptom and trauma. However they succeed each other, whichever one is one and whichever one is true, but don't forget symptom is one. Um, there's this third element that is not, is not addable to and not subtractable from this linear sequence of origin and event. Here, again, little a marks the differential retroactive relationship between trauma and symptom. It's an additional one that links these two phenomena, but prevents them from ever becoming one. And that's a really important part here. It prevents them from ever merging into a single, whole, unified, fused entity. And that's a really important part here because the one doesn't exist. You can make things count as one, but that's a production, that's an operation. The basic error of metaphysics in the Western tradition is to assume that the world begins with being, with oneness. Lacan's point, and it's a point that Alain Badiou, add another white man to the stack, is really going to realize that at the start of things is not oneness, but multiplicity. Not self-same, but radical difference. Union, oneness is an effect that you can produce the same way that you can produce um, its absence, namely lack. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.